Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. We are in the middle of doing a series loosely based on our upcoming book, No Half-Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message, due out in early 2020. We've talked about making sure we have the solid rock foundation of Scripture beneath us, and in the last episode, we looked at the dangers of using tradition, emotions, and experiences as an authority on the things of God and in our Christian walk. This week, we're going to start looking at each element of the Gospel message, beginning with someone who has no beginning. God, the Almighty Creator. Chris, why is it important that we know and understand the foundation of God, the Almighty Creator? Well, Rose, you and I both know there's a culture within some churches today that just want their congregants to be dumb and in love with Jesus. (laughs) They shy away from theology, which, as we have said, is the study of God and what you believe about God. So how can pastors and churches expect their people to be in love with God if they don't get to know Him? Very true. So here's, here's the problem as I say it in a nutshell. Christians are afraid of holding on to certain doctrines and certain concrete beliefs about God because they think it divides people. And it does. Right. So to counteract this, they'll go the opposite way and say things like, all we need is love. It sounds like the Beatles. Yeah, it does. But the Beatles didn't get that line from the Bible. You know why? Because it doesn't say it anywhere. No, it does not. (laughs) God never says not to have doctrine and not to have a theology. So in light of that, we're going to do what we can in our little corner of the world to emphasize the theology and doctrine by expanding our knowledge of God the Almighty Father. Well, at the very foundation of who God is, is the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is a great place to start. The doctrine of the Trinity, or what we believe to be true about the Trinity, has three major truths. One, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Two, each person is fully God. And three, there's only one God. Chris, can you explain that in simpler terms? We believe in one God who is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have all existed for all time simultaneously. All three are God. They are equal. They're omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. They're omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And they're omnipresent, meaning present everywhere at all times. The three omnis. You know, I think it's important that people realize only God has these characteristics. Nobody else, including Satan, contrary to what many believe, can be omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. Right. There's a lot of people that at least think he can be omnipresent. Although the Trinity is one God, they each have unique functions. The Father is never the Son, the Son is never the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is never the Father. I have a good example of this going really wrong. I once heard a worship leader pray, thank you, Jesus, for being such a good father. Ugh, that's a perfect example of not understanding the distinct roles of the Trinity. 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2 is a great verse that summarizes, summarizes the distinct roles of each one. It says, to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That is a great verse. And just to kind of put it another way, God the Father is the creator and the one who chooses who will be saved. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. He's the one who saves us. He's also our advocate or intercessor between God the Father and us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates our dead dead hearts. So we'll come to Jesus. He also indwells in believers, transforming them to be more like Jesus. We're going to devote an entire episode to Jesus and another one to the Holy Spirit. 
So if anyone's head is spinning right now, just hang in there with us. I know we say that a lot, but just hang in there. Yeah, hang in there because we're probably going to make your head spin a little more now because while the three persons of the Trinity have distinct roles, they're all exactly the same. Right. And this can definitely make your head hurt, but... Any attribute scripture ascribes to one of the three persons of the Trinity can also be ascribed to the other two. For instance, all three are eternal, as we see in Psalm 90, verse 2. God the Father has existed for all eternity. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting, you are God. And then in John 1, 1, it shows us that Jesus has existed for all eternity. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then there's Hebrews 9, verse 14, which tells us the Holy Spirit has existed for all eternity. And the beginning of that verse is, How much more then will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offer himself unblemished to God? That all three persons of the Trinity have distinct roles, yet are the same, is pretty complex. Yeah. And we'll never fully grasp it. But it's a truth we need to get, we need to believe it, and we need to function on a daily basis in that belief. Right. You know, and if you're thinking it's hard to believe something that's impossible to fully understand, then you have a major problem Mm. because you're not going to understand God. God is perfect and so much higher than us that everything about him is beyond our full comprehension. But that doesn't change the fact that he's deserving of our praise, our worship, and our complete devotion. He's holy. We're made from dirt. And that's a great lead into the first part of this very simplified gospel message. And the first part of that is... God creates. We only need to open our Bibles to the very first verse to have this confirmed. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the very essence of who God the Father is. And Paul reiterates that in Romans 1.20 because he tells us that creation shows us the attributes of God the Creator. In what ways do you think God is revealing the attributes of God the Creator? If we think back a couple of episodes ago when we talked about the importance of having a finished blueprint for any project, we can understand this concept a little better. God has a finished plan for the entire world before he ever created it. From the point of creation until Jesus comes back, every human who's ever lived is part of that plan. And Chris, that includes non-believers. Absolutely. Just look at when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 3, verses 21 and 22, we read that he gave his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that before they left, each woman asked her neighbor and anyone else she could for silver and gold and for clothing. (laughs) It's hard to imagine the Egyptians giving their slaves all this wealth. It's mind-blowing. But they did it. They did it because God sovereignly ordained that it would happen. Why? Because he had other plans for that wealth. And another text showing God working out his already finished plan for the world is in Romans 9, uh, verses 10 to 13. It says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That verse from Romans may be hard to read and even harder to understand. So just to clarify it a bit, God is not subject to waves of emotion like we are. When scripture says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, it doesn't mean the emotional kind of love and hate that we experience. For God, 
Love means acceptance and hate means rejection. So what it's saying is that God accepted Jacob and rejected Esau. I think people make the mistake of holding God to the same standards we're held to. I think so. God's the creator, the master and sustainer of the entire universe. And we're made from dirt. Right. He can accept whom he wants and he can reject who he wants. We, however, as the creation, are bound to what he commands of us. So you can't say, based on this verse, for example, that it's okay for us to accept who we want and reject who we want because God did. Well, I would kind of like to sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> You yeah, can't. I know, it's wrong. No, I can't do that. Um, in the bigger picture, though, when we're in the midst of God's plan, we can't always grasp the purposes behind what he's doing. Why does he accept some and not others? Why does heartache and devastation come into our life? It can seem like chaos or it can seem like God is inflicting unnecessary pain on us or others when we're in the midst of these trials. But that's where our faith comes in. We have to trust that God, who is completely sovereign, is also completely good and completely just and that he knows exactly what he's doing. Everyone has been created for a purpose and has a plan, has a place in God's plan. So even though God rejected Esau, Esau was created with a purpose and was part of God's plan. While the ultimate purpose of all man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, God has created each of us with a specific tailor-made purpose that's just for us. Chris, how can knowing that we have a specific part to play in God's plan for the world give us confidence and maybe ease some of our anxiety? Rose, God's will is talked about in a lot of Christian circles, mostly in regard to making decisions. Unfortunately, some Christians spend a lot of time worrying about what God's will is for them and whether they are doing God's will or whether they're following God's will or whether they're outside of God's will. But their worry comes from a misunderstanding of his will and his sovereignty. There's a couple of verses in Proverbs that illustrate what you're saying. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And the proverb before that, 20.24, says, A man's step are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Those are great verses for that. And there are two parts of God's will that we're talking about here. His decretive will and his preceptive will. God's decretive will is what he has ordained will come to pass. In other words, what he planned for the universe for all time. But this is the one that everybody wants to know. They want to know, who should I marry? Or which job should I take? Or what socks should I put on in the morning? Really? Socks? Yeah, honestly, (laughs) I knew somebody that worried about that every single morning. Hmm. People fret over these decisions, wondering what God wants them to do or which choice is God's best for them? As if one might bring blessing, and but one might bring even more blessing. However, that is not how God works. God's decretive will is the one we can't know until history actually unfolds. Until things happen, we can't be sure what is going to happen. That is absolutely correct, except for the few futuristic prophecies in the Bible, which are pretty general in their descriptions. I mean, for instance, we know Jesus is coming back, but we have no idea when. Right. Not only are we unable to know this part of God's will, his decretive will, John Calvin taught it was sinful to try and figure it out. And because we can't know his decretive will, we can't be out of it. Right. But the other aspect of God's will, we are to be majorly concerning ourselves with. And we can be outside of that part of it. And that's God's perceptive will. Or in other words, what he has said to us in scripture. 
We are definitely to concentrate on God's perceptive will. This is the will of God we should strive to learn. This is what he gave us that he wants us to know. And we can step outside of it by sinning. So knowing that there's two aspects to God's will that we're dealing with when we talk about this, let me give some examples of how this works. So one example of God's decretive will has to do with his elect or those he chose to save before the foundation of the world. We don't know who he's decreed to save, but he gave us marching orders, his perceptive will to spread the gospel to everybody. So we do what the Bible says. We stay in God's perceptive will by spreading the gospel accordingly. And he takes care of the decretive part by saving whom he chooses. Right. And I love how Tim Keller describes this using his own life and his decisions to plant a church in New York City. People would ask him if he was absolutely certain that it was God's will for him to plant a church in New York City. And he would respond, no. He would then go on to say that he was not positive he was called to plant a church, but that he absolutely was certain that we're not to worship idols from, the, from knowing scripture, that we're not to murder and numerous other things that God has revealed in his word. And he was also certain that God desires people to know him from his word. And he knew that there weren't any others starting churches in New York City and there was a need there. So he decided to plant a church. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Augustine said, Love God and do whatever you want. Sounds pretty simplistic, but you know, we need to realize what goes into the part of loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in light of that, when you get down to it, That's really how we should walk through our lives. Right. And if we think about the story of Joseph in the Bible, God decreed that Israel would end up in Egypt. And then 400 years or so after that, Moses would lead them out of slavery there. The means that God used to get them to Egypt in the first place was by Joseph's brothers sinning and selling him off off to a slave caravan. That eventually landed him in Egypt. And then later, all of Israel was brought to Egypt because of a famine because Joseph was there. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph tells his brothers when they finally meet again, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God intended the brothers' actions for good, and they intended their sinful actions of selling their brother off as evil. So God is sovereignly in control of everything, but we don't know what his plans are. So we're freely making choices down here on earth. That makes us responsible for our sinful decisions, just like Joseph's brothers were. But God ordained not only the ends or the outcome of things, but all the means that led up to the end. That's how he works. Right. And for our part, we pray, we seek wisdom and guidance from his word, and we grow in those things and in our own holiness. And then we step out and make decisions using our intellect, our likes, our dislikes, our circumstances, and all of the other things that go into determining what to decide about something, and we go with it. God is still in control. There isn't a worst, better, and best decision for you. God is not responding to your decisions. And like we said earlier, he's got a plan. We don't know what the plan is, so we're freely making decisions. But as Christians, we should be making decisions that line up with the Bible. The reality is God's will for us is to be transformed to be more and more like his son by studying his word and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the more we become like Christ, the more our desires will line up with God's. So study his word. Rose, some people want to have a magic eight ball so that God will give them answers through it. 
instead of spending significant amounts of time in prayer and studying scripture. So another way to say this is we shouldn't worry about the big picture, which is God's decreed will. Everything will come to pass just as he plans and just as he purposes. We should, though, concentrate on the smaller picture, which is God's perceptive will, which is basically becoming more and more obedient to God's word and showing the fruit of our salvation. Rose, this is important to understand. Another aspect of God the Father to understand is that God is perfect in his holiness and that he is also perfectly just. I think most would agree that everything about God is holy. God is not just called holy in scripture. He's called holy, holy, holy. Holy is not just one of the many attributes of God. It's infused into every other attribute. For example, his love is holy. Since this is true, then it stands to reason that his justice is also holy. So how can we define holy justice? Holy justice is basically that everyone gets what they deserve. That's always an attribute of God that people balk at. You know, they say, how can a perfectly loving God punish people for quote unquote messing up? You'll hear people say, this part of God makes them look like a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. The problem is people want to separate the attributes of God. They're all about his being holy in love, but they don't want him to be holy in justice especially if that justice is aimed at them. Right. But you can't separate who God is. So while he is certainly perfectly holy love, he's also perfect holy justice. In fact, being perfectly just enhances God's perfect love. I mean, think about it. Would God's love be perfect if he ignored sin? Of course not. It would make him inconsistent, untrustworthy, immoral, and worst of all, it would make him weak. But Chris, can you think of an example of how God overlooking sin would negate his perfect love? And how do you explain this concept to a new or non-believer when they say, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, it's only when we understand the holiness of God, the almighty creator and father, that we can understand the seriousness of our sin against that holy God. We have to remember that because everyone is sinful, Everyone deserves hell. That's a hard pill for human beings to swallow because inwardly, we all think we're at least okay. And most of us, if we're honest about it, think we're pretty good. But next to perfect holiness, we're not okay. We'll discuss this a lot more in depth in the coming weeks. But in a nutshell, God is perfect in everything. And that includes not only his holiness, but also his justice. And because we're all deserving of hell, it's actually incredibly loving and merciful that God chose to save any of us. That comprehension makes the saving work of Jesus all the sweeter for those who have been saved by it. God didn't have to save anybody, but he chose to save some. Proverbs 16 verse 4 says, The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. That's really hard to hear. It is. But we have to keep in mind that every human being is deserving of that disaster. Remember, having a healthy reverence for God and his magnificence is the biblical definition of fear of God. As our favorite verse, Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's a great verse to end on. In our next episode, we will discuss being dead as a doornail. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss an episode. And check out our website at www.proverbs910ministries.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed day.